Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. Uh, to our Sutra Study Sunday. Uh, my name is Michael. If it's your first time here, hi. Um, and if it is your first time here, welcome to the San Francisco Dharma Flight. If it's your first time here, here, here. Um, so again, this is our usual Sutra Study Sunday, and tonight's a special night because we are going to be talking about the Heart Sutra, or the otherwise known as the Pranya Paramita Heart Sutra, otherwise known as the Pranya Paramita Hidra Sutra in Sanskrit. Uh, the usual format for these uh, sort of talks is that I usually give a quick introduction to where the sutra comes from, like where it fits into the larger scope of Buddhism. Um, I try to give you any, uh, kind of clarify any foreign terms or words that might come up, and then I usually read the sutra, and then we discuss it. The Heart Sutra is a unique case, though, and it's going to require a little bit more explanation um, of sort of where it comes from, what it is, and all of that. So I'm going to do that. And again, it's, it's not quite as easy as some of the sutras that we've been doing, where I've just been like, you know, Majima Nikaya, number 121. And it's just like, oh, great, that's, that's where it is. The Heart Sutra is unique, and it's, it's a very complicated story that I'm going to try to distill down to a very simple, mm, you know, explanation in that way. Um, before I do that, I have some preliminary remarks about, um, well, about these sutras uh, that, that, um, well, that we're going to be looking at. So I've talked to many people about this in the past. If it's your first time here, this uh, might be news to you. But there is traditionally this distinction in the world of Buddhism between so-called Theravada Buddhism, like an earlier form of, earliest, some people argue, earliest form of Buddhism, uh, based primary, primarily in a language called Pali. And then there's this sort of larger Buddhist culture, movement, tradition called Mahayana Buddhism, usually preserved in Sanskrit. And in the past, I've used the example of like Isaac Newton, smart guy, discovered the whole scientific system that became kind of the basis of Western science, Western physics, and all of that. But of course, his Discoveries led to other discoveries, eventually leads to Einstein and modern quantum physics and all of that. And if you were really interested in science, and you were the type of person that you were like, no, no, I only do Newton. I'm only in, down with Isaac Newton. That would seem a little weird to abandon all progress that's been made since that person, that's based on that person, that owes everything to that person. It would be a little odd to just stay, stay in the Newtonian worldview, right? You'd kind of want to, if you were interested in the science, you'd want to know it all, right? Another example might be something like punk rock music, right? <laughs> and so to get away from the science, to more like a little more cultural, right? A lot of people would say like the Ramones, right? First punk rock band, arguably so. But again, it would be a little weird if you were into punk rock, but you were like, I only listen to the Ramones though. Like, that's it. And you don't like anything that came after the Ramones, it was influenced by the Ramones, like punk, maybe British punk. Oh, British, no, it has to be English. It has to be English and it has to be the Ramones. Okay, 
maybe that would be one way to be into punk rock, but you might be missing out, right? And especially you would be missing out on all these bands that were into the Ramones, that got influenced by the Ramones and took punk rock in all these different directions. And then there's like Brazilian punk rock and all these, you know, and punk rock in all these other languages. And, you know, maybe something that's like arguably punk rock and you can get into like why it might be punk, why it might not be punk. But to just limit yourself to the original band, I'm just going to listen to that, that first Ramones album and that's it. You know, again, that you could do that if you would like. These are sort of, I kind of relate this to being really rigidly adherent to only the Pali, only the early Buddhist, only the Theravada tradition. And that somehow this Mahayana stuff is later, you know, uh, I don't know, whatever, whatever, whatever. That kind of attitude that Mahayana, especially something like this Heart Sutra, that because it may, and tonight I'm going to say it, it did not come from the mouth of the Buddha, the historical figure, 2,500 years ago, 500 BC. It did not come from that person's mouth. So if, if you're the type of person's like, well, then I'm out of here. See you, Michael. Thanks. If you're not interested in that, then that's, that's fine. But examine why, what is this allegiance to um, um, the oldest, right? What I call originitis, that you have to have the original. And if it's not the original, it's no good. That's a kind of an illness, what I call originitis, you know, that I must have the original and I will discard everything. And if I discover that there's something earlier, I'll discard that which I've been basing my whole practice on because I've found the more original. Mm, maybe not the best approach. But again, if it's your approach, that's fine. So this Pranyaparamita Heart Sutra comes to us from this larger culture, the larger punk rock movement of Buddhism. Okay, uh, and I'm going to quickly walk you through this. I'm going to read a little bit from an early uh, Mahayana Sutra um, and then go into our Heart Sutra. So what happens is, is that, of course, our Theravada original Buddhist movement starts arguably about 500 B.C. And most scholars, myself included, do not argue that the Pali canon, the Pali suttas that we've been reading the last number of weeks, most scholars don't argue that those probably come from as old as 500 BC. Linguistically, they appear to be coming from the mind of like one person. They appear to be an orally transmitted tradition. Um, and it's sort of, and as I've been reading these suttas the last number of weeks, they're very straightforward teachings, right? Thus have I heard, once the Buddha was in such and such a place, the monks were disputing, and so the Buddha said, boom, here are some rules or here are some guidelines to reconcile disputes. Everybody good? Great, see ya. Very simple, straightforward teachings. And again, nobody sort of denies their historicity, but this, this Dharma, this Buddha Dharma, went wild. It went crazy. India went wild for it. Um, you know, in a sense, India, by, by around 250 BC, India had become almost, you know, predominantly Buddhist. It was like a, the, the dominant ideology in India for a moment, starting about 250 BC and onwards. And so out of this rich culture, starting around 100 BC, this is just what the scholars generally agree, is that it's about this time that there emerges these, a whole new world of sutras. Um, they're in Sanskrit, but as are many of the early Buddhist stuff, by the way. So they're in Sanskrit, but they are focused on one particular, particular Buddhist idea. 
And it's this idea of pranya, usually translated as transcendent wisdom, transcendental wisdom, something to that effect. Wisdom is fine for now, for now. Paramita is usually translated as perfection. And so pranya paramita is usually translated as the perfection of wisdom. Perfection is not what paramita means. I will spend a second on what it, what it might mean. Um, the word paramita has the, the, the meaning of to ferry or to deliver over. There's a sense of crossing over. The para is the sense of over. And the overarching metaphor within Buddhism is that these paramitas, which are discussed in the Pali Canon, these paramitas are means to enlightenment. That's kind of what a paramita means. It's, it'll ferry you over to nirvana. It's a crossing over to nirvana. And there are different virtues, patience, discipline, a determination, wisdom. There's these different virtues that are considered paramitas. They can deliver you. This, the one that we're going to be talking about primarily tonight, is the heart of this pranya paramita, this deliverance by wisdom, something to that effect. And then, of course, it is the sutra that is the heart of the pranya paramita. What you might like to know is that most scholars consider this poem called the Ratnaguna Samchaya Gatha. Gatha is a poem. Most of the things we've been reading, actually, are gathas. This is the Ratnaguna Samchaya Gatha, which Ratnaguna Samchaya is a little tricky to, um, to explain. It could be the poem or gatha verses, the gatha, which is the storehouse of all precious virtues. That's what Ratnaguna Samchaya means. Okay? This is not a sutra. It's a gatha. It's a poem. But I'm, I mentioned this several times that the single excellent night sutta that we read, the actual little poem of a single excellent night, that was a gatha, right? Uh, and then we read uh, the metta sutta in which the Buddha gives the monks a gatha, a poem to think about in terms of extending, extending loving kindness. So these poems, these gathas are so important to Buddhism. And so there appeared this gatha, this Ratnaguna Samchaya Gatha. And I want to read to you a little bit from it. It's, um, um, it's, very, it's, it's not too long. It's pretty long. I mean, as far as poems go, it's pretty long. All right, so it's about 70, 80 pages long. And what you might like to know is that this poem is considered the first original Mahayana discourse. Definitely the first Pranyaparamita discourse, but maybe even the first kind of Mahayana, this non-Theravada, non-Pali-based um, sutra. And this Ratnaguna Sanchaya Gatha becomes extended into an actual full-on sutra. Thus have I heard, the Buddha was saying in Rajgriha, and that sutra is called the Ashtahasarika Pranyaparamita Sutra, eight, the 8,000-line Pranyaparamita Sutra. So it's actually a sutra that's measured in 8,000 lines of verse. It's a very uh, 
long sutra, because this is actually both the Gatha and then the sutra together. Um, I'm not going to get into the sutra. I have read from this sutra in the past. But I want to read to you how this sounds. And all of the work that we've been doing, the Metta Sutra, all of the Pali stuff that we've been looking at is going to be so helpful for you understanding this. Um, so let me just read this really quickly. This is sort of actually from the very end of the Gatha. And it's talking about Samadhi. Samadhi, yeah. So we've been talking about Samadhi's for the last several weeks, these uh, usually translated as concentration. Deep, deep state of meditation, deep state of concentration, single-pointed awareness, right? And so this is this gatha, you know, and then it's this, again, a Mahayana. It's this new type of Buddhism, okay? And I want you to hear maybe it's newness, but also it's how it, it's good old-fashioned Buddha Dharma, right? So this is the paramita of samadhi, which is also a virtue that can lead to nirvana or liberation. And it reads like this. Those of great might who dwell in the four dhyanas do not make them into a place to settle down in, nor into a home. But these four dhyanas will in turn become the basis for the attainment of the supreme and unsurpassable enlightenment. One who is established in the dhyanas becomes one who obtains pranya, the foremost wisdom. And also when he experiences the foremost excellent formless dhyanas, he makes these dhyanas subservient to the best and foremost enlightenment. But it is not for the extinction of the outflows that the Bodhisattva trains himself in these. Astonishing and wonderful is this accumulation of precious qualities. When they have dwelled in dhyana and samadhi, there is then no sign. When the personality of those who have stood therein breaks up, they are reborn again in the world of sense desire, just as they intended. As some man from Jambudvipa, who had in the past been a god, would, after reaching again the highest abodes of the gods, see the apartments contained within them, and would then again come back and not make his home therein. Just so, those bodhisattvas, bearers of the best qualities, having dwelt in dhyana and samadhi, yogins who have ex exerted themselves become again established in the sense world, unstained as the lotus in water, independent of the dharmas of fools. Except in order to develop sentient beings, to purify Buddha lands, and to fulfill these paramitas, those great-souled ones, mahasattvas, do not strive after rebirth in the formless realms lest there be a loss of the perfections and of the qualities of enlightenment therein. It is as if a man, having found a deposit of jewels, would not generate longing in his intelligence with regard to it. At some other time, he may acquire a few of them, having taken hold of them, 
having entered into his home, he would not be covetous for more. Just so the wise bodhisattvas who have gained the calm samadhi of the four dhyanas, which gives joy and ease, having let go the acquisition of that joy and ease of dhyana and and samadhi, they enter again into this sensuous world, compassionate for all that lives. When a bodhisattva dwells in the samadhi of the dhyanas, he generates no longer in his intelligence for the way of the arhats or the solitary buddhas. For then he becomes unconcentrated in his thought, distracted and puffed up. He has lost the qualities of a Buddha, a sailor who suffers shipwreck. Although he applies himself to the five sense qualities, to form and sound and likewise smell and taste and touch, when free from the way of the arhats and solitary Buddhas, the joyous bodhisattva should, a hero, be wisely known as being constantly concentrated. Okay, so that's the gatha. I want you to hear how, how many of the things that we've been talking about, the four dhyanas, the four formless samadhis, the no sign, the signless, all of those things appear in here. But this is a gatha about the bodhisattva, not the Buddha who told us how to reach the signless last week in the Shunyata Sutta, right? Not the Buddha who taught us how to do it. This is a gatha about those doing it, what we could call bodhisattvas, enlightenment seekers, who are doing what the Buddha said to do. And this is a poem about what it's like to do that. All right? I'm going to read one more part of this because I think... I think this will really, really help you understand the the nature of this poem. So I'm going back sort of towards the beginning, um, and this is called Where a Bodhisattva Stands. He does not stand in form, sensation, perception, or consciousness in any skandha whatsoever. In Dharma's true nature alone, he is standing then that is his practice of wisdom, the highest wisdom, pranya. Change, no change, suffering, ease, self, no self, the lovely, the repulsive, just one suchness in this emptiness they are. And so he takes not his stand on the fruit which he won, which is threefold, the fruit of the arhat, the fruit of the solitary Buddha, or the fruit of the fully enlightened Buddha. The leader himself was not stationed in the realm which is free from conditions, nor in the things which are under conditions, but freely he wandered without a home. Just so, without a support or a basis, a bodhisattva is standing. A position devoid of a basis has that position been called by the great Gina? Right. I'm going to stop there because I want you, I don't know if you caught it. The leader himself was not stationed in the realm which is free from conditions, right? This is talking about the Buddha. No Pali Theravadan Sutta has the Buddha talking about himself, right? You following me? This is clearly, like I know there's a big debate within the world of Mahayana Buddhism and Buddhism in general, and most 
you know, hardcore Mahayana people will say, oh, no, the Buddha, the Buddha spoke all of these sutras. It's clearly not true. These are clearly referring to the great leader, that he taught us all this stuff. And so I just want you to see that there's this emphasis on the bodhisattva as one, as one who is doing the dharma. And then this is a whole tradition about that practice of it, the doing of it. Yeah? Okay. And again, did you hear the themes that we've been talking about in the past? But there's a few. I'm going to probably come back to this little one. So I'm going to keep that open. So those are, of course, I just read from this Ratnaguna Sanchaya Gatha, this poem, which then turns into this 8,000-line Praniparamita Sutra, considered the first of these. And what I want you to know, though, is that these, this sutra, you know, this 8,000-line Pranyaparamita sutra, this is just about as long as, like, all, like, so many of the Theravada suttas. It's just, Theravada suttas are relatively short. This is a book. This is huge. This is a huge sutra. And, indeed, Mahayana sutras are, tend to be very large. And not only that, this, the poem which turns into the sutra, eventually turns into hundreds of sutras. And so this little book I have here by Edward Konza, just called the Pranyaparamita Literature, this book right here is actually just a list of the titles of Pranyaparamita Sutras. Just the titles. Only, um, what, you know, 10, 20 have been translated into English? There's hundreds that have not been translated into English yet, okay? So I just want you to know, first of all, how vast this body of literature is. And again, if, you're, if you dug my punk rock metaphor, right, there's this whole trove of punk rock music. And if you're into punk rock music, it's there, it, if you get my meaning, right? Hi, David. Um, so this text is 80,000. 8,000. 8,000 lines. Then all this other literature. From a technological point of view, how was all this printed? And how was it all published? In the oh. era before yeah. the internet. Uh, well, certainly... In, 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 in the West, everything was copied by hand, letter by letter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for the most part, I would say up until... Probably the common, what we call the common era, Anno Domini, right? So I would say that for that first 500 years of Buddhist history, this was oral. These were poems, they were gathas. You know, be here all night talking about the relationship between poetry and oral traditions in terms of mnemonics and remembering things and all of that. And so whether they're, they're Pali gathas or Sanskrit gathas or all of that, all of this seems to be transmitted orally. Um, you do find right here in the early days of the common era in a place uh, in Afghanistan today, Gandhara back in the day, um, you start to find um, old uh, manuscripts, actual handwritten things on, sometimes they're on bark, sometimes they're on paper, um, but in Afghanistan, they have discovered a l relatively large trove of Buddhist sutras that were written. And so, again, that goes back to 50, 60, 100 AD. 
And then from there, it just goes crazy as far as, especially what we're kind of talking about. You can see here I have some Chinese script because what we are talking about is the movement of Buddhism out of India into China. And the Chinese invented printing. Invented printing. In fact, the Buddhists invented printing in China through an interesting form of magic. Uh, very, very quickly, there's a form of Buddhist magic called insigilation, where you would create a seal, carve a seal, and then you would uh, sometimes use blood, sometimes use all kinds of things, and you would dip it, and the, the, the seal would have words and pictures, and it would, let's say it's a healing, a healing mantra, a healing spell, and some imagery carved out, and they would put it in ink and then press it on people's bodies, like where they had um, uh, pains, or they would um, uh, press it on water, burn it, and have people drink the ashes, so they're drinking the seal, as a form of magical medicine. Uh, there's a book called Magical Medicine uh, that's about er, this type of magical medicine that I'm describing in China. And there's a Buddhist sutra that talks about getting a piece of wood, carving in relief words, and then pressing them. And it's from, I think, around 600 or so. And it's considered the earliest reference to printing, block printing. G Gutenberg is like, thousand years later than this, right? So, uh, so answer is, is that the Chinese then went nuts. And actually, if I didn't mention it, in, in Gandahar in Afghanistan, this, the cache of sutras they found, Pranyaparamita sutras, by the way, um, some of the earliest sutras translated, this guy, Lokashema, which I'll talk about in a second, who translated the Ratnaguna Sanchaya Gatha into Chinese in 179 AD, at that point, they're starting to print, in, or not at that point, but afterwards. So to answer your question, originally it's oral, then manuscript, and then pretty quickly printing. And on that note, though, I will say this. The injunction that a lot of sutras have to read, recite, and copy them, like there's this constant injunction, in, in, mainly in Mahayana sutras, to replicate the sutra. It seems to be that that injunction is what brought about printing. In China, the, the, the uh, perceived karmic rewards for mass reproduction. They're like, ah, let's get that merit. Let's get the puna. Let's get it. Little did they know of the technological you know, leaps and bounds they were making, right? Okay, let's go back. So let's see. Really quickly, let me just walk you through this. So it's around 100 BC that these sutras, these Pranyaparamita Mahayana sutras start to appear. There is a record of this guy, Lokashema, who is from Gandhara, <coughs> coming to China and translating the Ratnaguna in 179. This Pranyaparamita stuff, I can't really stress enough how, um, how important these ideas were, the ideas we're going to talk about in a moment, how important these were for the Chinese getting into Buddhism. They're really into pranya, paramita, ideas of emptiness, non-dualism, non-duality, and all of that. And there's a monk named Kumarajiva who came from Kucha, Central, Central Asia, so not as far as Afghanistan, more Central Asia. And in, four, in the 400s, he started translating, boy, I mean, he translated Lotus Sutra, Diamond Sutra, all of these sutras. 
Um, I didn't mention that this 8,000 line printing paramita sutra, there eventually develops a 25,000 line version of it. Much, much bigger. I didn't even bring it because it was too heavy. <laughs> big, big book. Then the 25,000 line gets developed into a 100,000 line version of this. This has not been translated into English. I mean, this is a huge, huge. So this is growing and growing and growing. This guy, Kumar Jiva, comes to China, and in the 400s, he starts translating all of this stuff into Chinese. And he had, um, he had a bunch of students that were his... Um, they helped him translate because Kumar... I don't want to get too into this, but he developed a whole translation committee with these students. The reason why I'm mentioning this is because what happens, and so I'm just cutting straight to the chase, by the way. You're getting the benefits of you know, thousands of hours of research here. What happened was is that Kumari Jiva seems to have written a small little poem as a kind of cheat sheet, crib notes for the whole Pranyaparamita situation. And he called it the Pranyaparamita Heart Sutra. Actually, he didn't even call it a sutra, technically. He actually called it a spell or a mantra. So he called it the Pranyaparamita heart mantra, heart spell. And the idea was is that he was like, okay, kids, if you, you can't remember all 8,000 lines of this, or you can't remember this, this, can you remember this? Can you remember these 268 characters? Because if I didn't mention it already, the heart sutra is the smallest of Buddhist sutras, Right? Um, again, 268 Chinese characters. You can literally write it like on the proverbial grain of rice. It's, it's so small. Um, in Sanskrit, you should know that if this is the 8,000 line version, the Pranyaparamita Hidra Sutra, Hidra, heart, is 14 lines. So Kumara Jiva seems to have shrunk the whole, maybe even the whole 100,000 line version down to this simple little poem that his students could kind of remember to be like, oh yeah, that's the heart of it. That's it, right? That although, by the way, again, is like new information. For the longest time, everybody assumed this was sort of a sutra and there's um, a lot of folklore about where these sutras come, for, come from, underwater magical worlds of shape-shifting serpent people, all kinds of stuff. I'm giving you the more straight, like, straight-ahead version here. What you should, the next thing you need to know is that Kumarajiva's version, fast forward 250 years, there's a Chinese monk named Xuanzang, can't undersell how important he is to the history of Buddhism, but in the year 649, he took Kumarajiva's little poem and basically made a few tweaks here and there stylistically and got it into the version of the Heart Sutra, which is two pages and that. So he got it down to even tighter. And the, the most important thing I can tell you right now is that Xuanzang's version of Kumara Jiva's little condensation of the Pranyaparamita Sutra literature here, Xuanzang's version, this Heart Sutra, is undeniably the most important sutra in the world today. 
All the other sutras we've been doing, a lot of them are obscure. Nobody looks at them anymore. I think they're cool. I want to share them with you. Things like the Lotus Sutra that we did a number of, uh, maybe like last year, the Lotus Sutra. Very, very important sutra. Today, you know, for some folks, but not so much for others. Um, The Diamond Sutra's up there, but nothing compares to the Heart Sutra. I'm talking about Tibetan Buddhism, Mongolian Buddhism, Korean Buddhism, Chinese Buddhism, Japanese Buddhism. To a certain degree, even a lot of Southeast Asian groups, like that would be called Theravada, the Heart Sutra has made its way back into the so-called Theravada tradition. And this sutra, in all those countries I just named, in the Buddhist uh, monasteries and organizations in those countries, they chant this sutra morning, noon, and night. And I mean that literally. When they wake up, before they eat their one meal a day at noon, and then before they go to bed. And probably even ten times more. Okay? Um, So it's super important. This is a general genealogy of where it comes from. And the Chinese heart, heart, has a lot of the same connotations that the English word heart has in terms of, like, if you know something by heart, what does that mean to know something by heart, right? That, whatever, whatever that means to you in English, that you know something by heart, that meaning of heart is present in this. When we talk about, um, you know, hearts of palm and we talk about, like, the core of something, that kind of heart, that's also in this because this is considered the heart of this pranaparamita. Um, the other connotation, again, is like that you know it by heart. It's so short you can memorize it type of a thing. That, that might be all you need to know. Let's read it. Again, it's uh, very short. Uh, this is a translation I did. I'm always translating the Heart Sutra. That's all I'm ever doing, all the time. Um, it just constantly changes and all of that. Um, there's probably a lot of ideas you might not get, but let's just do it real quick, right? Uh, interestingly, no thus have I heard. No, the Buddha was in such and such a place. In fact, there's not even a Buddha. The Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara while practicing the profound pranyaparamita, clearly saw that all five skandhas are empty, thus overcoming all suffering. Sharputra. Form is no different from emptiness. Emptiness, no different from form. Form is just emptiness. Emptiness, just form. Sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness are also like this. Sharputra. This is the emptiness of all dharmas. They neither arise nor cease, are neither defiled nor pure, and neither increase nor decrease. For this reason, within emptiness, there is no form, sensation, perception, volition, or consciousness. There is no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind. No sight, sound, scent, taste, touch, or thought. No seeing, even no thinking. No ignorance, nor end of ignorance. Even no aging and death, nor end to aging and death. No suffering, origin, cessation, or path. No wisdom, and no attainment. Since nothing is attained, 
Bodhisattvas maintain pranyaparamita. Then their heart is without hindrance. And since without hindrance, without fear. Escaping upside-down dreamlike thinking and completely realizing nirvana. All Buddhas of all times maintain pranyaparamita, thus attaining anuttara samyak sambodhi. Hence you should know, pranyaparamita is the all-powerful mantra, the great enlightening mantra, the unexcelled mantra, the unequaled mantra, able to dispel all suffering. This is true, not false. Therefore, proclaim the pranyaparamita mantra and recite the mantra thus, gate gate paragate parasamgate bodhisvaha. That's it. That's the Heart Sutra. And last we talked, we touched base a little bit on the Heart Sutra already, right? And I found like the most insightful aspect I found from our um, last week's conversations that you mentioned. Interesting that the Heart Sutra starts with um, form is emptiness, emptiness is form, and not the other way around, right? Like you always find mm. form first. So mm-hmm. I found, find it really interesting that it starts with the concept of form, right? Instead of with the idea of emptiness. <laughs> mm-hmm. Something, I don't know. I, I do, obviously, I want to talk about the most famous part of the sutra, which is the form is emptiness, emptiness is form. So I'm going to get into that. So, But I'm going to go, and go word by word. So, yeah. Are you going to do the Sanskrit part in English for us? Gati gati parasam gati yeah. para, uh, sorry gati gati paragati parasam gati bodhisattva is usually not translated because it's a mantra and mantras are considered that it's all in their sound. If you wanted to know though, gati is this guy Edward Konza who translated all this stuff. He's sort of the foremost expert in pranyaparamita stuff. He translates gati as gone, and therefore he translated it as gone, gone, very gone, way gone, enlightenment. Svaha. And Svaha is this ender. It's a Sanskrit ender. It means like basta. In the, you know, it's like, and not like done. And so, yeah, we could talk about that too if we have time, but let's go through it. So the, the name of the sutra is the Bo Rei. This is in Chinese. Bo Rei, Bo Lo Mi Bo, Xin Jing. So heart is heart, Xin. You should just know that this Bo Rei in Chinese was. Back in medieval times, in Kumarajiva's day, these two characters probably sounded more like pranya because they're transliterations. So even though these Chinese characters have meaning, they're actually using them for their sound. But then it's weird because modern Mandarin, they're pronounced bo-re, which doesn't sound anything like pranya. But I guarantee you back in Kumarajiva's days, this was a more of a pra and this a nya. Same thing here. This is paramita. Uh, they were trying to capture the sound. Again, if we went back to Kumaravijiva's time, each of these characters would have been more like paramita. So it's just the, the transliteration of pranyaparamita and then heart, heart, shin, and then that's the character for sutra. All right? And then the, the sutra starts with this, um, this character. Um, and I don't mean Chinese character, I mean uh, personage. This is Guan, and then in this one, 
Xuanzang loved calling Avilokiteshvara Guanzai. So this is a transliteration of Avilokiteshvara. And it's a kind of an interesting attempt, or not attempt, but it's an interesting translation of this name, Avalokiteshvara, Avalokiteshvara. Um, this is our, our hero of the sutra. Again, if you, if you noted, there's no Buddha. It's about Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva, Avalokiteshvara, which again, this uh, Xuanzang guy, translates Avilokiteshvara as Guan Zi Zai. Again, I only want to spend moments on all of these really interesting ideas, but usually Avilokiteshvara is translated in Chinese as Guan Shi Yin, hearer of the world's crying. And indeed, Avilokiteshvara usually has the sense of a hearer of the world, the loka. Um, but this Zi Zai is so interesting because it's a different etymological understanding of this, and zidzai means sovereign, self-sovereign. Does everybody know what I mean by that, right? So like a king or the emperor is the sovereign, the person to whom the rules do not apply because they are the makers of the rules, right? So sovereignty is this interesting idea of like independence, I'm not subject to anybody. I'm the sovereign, right? Well, the, the idea of this Avilokiteshvara is that this is the, 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 so, the, sovereign, the sovereign bodhisattva. But in Chinese, there's this very interesting thing because this zi, this is zi, this is the self, zi. Zai means at, and guan Guan is this beautiful character for to see, but it's a special kind of seeing. It's uh, like a deep, deep perceiving, right? See or observe. So there's this, I just wanted to, um, so this guy Xuanzang was quite the mystic. And so there's something going on in his version of this heart suture where depending on where you basically want to put a comma, it changes the whole meaning of the sutra. And there's something very magical about Chinese that you get to do that because of the grammar that you can kind of say, well, if I stop the first sentence here, the second sentence is that. But if I stop the first sentence here, the second sentence is that. And it has a totally different meaning. And there's ways that Chinese writers write in that ambiguity where they're intentionally writing both meanings and letting you decide. Do you want to stop here? Do you want to stop there? Can you see where it's both? So there is this way in which this is saying the Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara, right? And then it says practicing Pranyaparamita. But it could also be saying, imagine yourself practicing the Pranyaparamita. It's just this thing that happens. And I, I, I say this because of this other guy, Shariputra. Right? So you might have noticed this name, Shariputra, and I was pointing at Noam, because it's a, it's a monk. And Shariputra is funny because Shariputra is this Theravadan monk. He's an elder, a Thera. And in this sutra, he sort of represents an old school Abhidharma Theravada way of thinking about the Dharma. 
that's thinking about the Dharma in terms of the five skandhas. Okay? So, we'll, we'll get there. But again, this sutra is really, or this sutra, this poem is really weird because of these just sharputra. Form is no, you know, form is no different from emptiness. Emptiness is no different from form. The understanding, if you read the larger sutra, is that Avilokiteshvara is saying to Shariputra, hey, Shariputra, guess what? Form is no different from emptiness. Emptiness is no different from form. All right? But the reason why I went through this whole kind of mystical aspect of it is that when you first start reading this sutra, the Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara is practicing the, pranya, the profound Pranyaparamita. Right? And when that's happening, the Bodhisattva clearly sees that all five skandhas are empty, thus overcoming all suffering. All right? Now, again, I'm just going to give it to you straight. Here's what's happening. Theravada Buddhism, early Buddhism, it was a tremendous revelation to the world that... It was a tremendous reveal to the world that there was no atma, no self or essence. This, this is normal, regular Buddhism. Nobody should be surprised by what I'm about to say right now. The idea is, is this anatman. There's no atma. There's no essential self. No soul. No little spirit that pops out and goes and reincarnates. What you are, what each of us are, are a moment. So instead of an atman, there are these five Skandhas. Skandhas. Aggregates. The five aggregates. Okay. These are the five skandhas. And so this is your, this is your first time down Dharma Road. <laughs> the five skandhas here are... So we all have the impression that we are... Like we have a name, a singular name, which gives this illusion that there's a singular... Uh, what? That's the question, right? Singular what? Here. That would be, in, in essence, the idea of an atman, a self. The Buddha came along after everybody in India went crazy trying to find their atman. The Buddha's revelation here is that there, there just isn't one. That's why you haven't been able to find it. There just isn't. We are the momentary coagulation or skandha, the aggregation of form or matter our sensations, our perceptions, our conditioning, or what's usually translated as volition, and our consciousness. An important aspect for Buddhism is that all five of those things are constantly changing. Your conscious state is different than it was two seconds ago, different than it was ten seconds ago. The, your mental conditioning is different based on what I've just told you. You're thinking different now. Uh, your perceptions are different in the sense that when you were outside, you were seeing all that was going on there. Now there's this. When you leave, you'll see different things. You'll be having different sensations in that sense. Different vis visual sensations, bodily sensations, all of that. And indeed, over time, our body physical form changes. My hair is much different than I was when I was a little kid. I'm much taller when I was a little kid. So the idea that all five of these things are changing, but the Atma, that's definitely... No. No Atma. The Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara, however, while practicing the signless that we talked about, the Shunyata, last week's sutra, 
that the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara was practicing last week's sutra and clearly saw that the five skandhas are empty, thus overcoming all suffering. So originally the Buddha said, you want to come overcome all suffering? Understand that there's no Atman. Stop clinging to what is not there and you will stop suffering. That's the general prescription. The Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, going down that deep, deep, profound Pranyaparamita road, says, oh, wow, no, the Buddha's, the Buddha's wisdom applies even to these. These can be broken down further into constituent elements, which can be broken down into constituent elements. All right? So this is a big movement in Buddhism. So originally it was just the Atman that just wasn't. And you could kind of rely on the skandhas. And in fact, the early Buddhist world, they kind of got it down to there being 108 little d dharmas. Elements or particles of reality. Not really particles, uh, but more like elements of reality. And so the skandhas, like, so form is earth, fire, water, and air, right? Sensations are negative, positive, and neutral. Perceptions are all kinds of those. But the idea is, is that the four great elements, negative, positive, negative, positive, and neutral reactions, greed, hatred, delusion, lust, all these things, there's 108 dharmas that all of reality boils down to these 108 elements that are interlocking in different ways. Oh, look, a configuration of earth, fire, water, and air. Oh, look, a configuration of earth, fire, water, and air, greed, lust, delusion. 108. It takes 108 dharmas to make this go around. It makes 108 dharmas to make all of this go around according to the early Abhidharma school of Buddhism that our Shariputra represents. Shariputra, in a sense, believed in the dharmas believed in these particles coming together to make this world. And Avilokiteshvara, practicing this profound pranyaparamita, clearly sees that even these are empty, thus overcoming all suffering. So Avilokiteshvara turns to Shariputra and says, Shariputra, you're never going to believe this. Form is no different from emptiness. Emptiness is no different from form. Sensations, perceptions, conditioning, and consciousness, they're also like that. No different from emptiness. Okay. On that note, to the form is emptiness and which comes first, I think actually what's more important is that I think a lot, because the way the sutra reads, it says, hey, Shariputra, Form is no different from emptiness. Emptiness is no different from form. Form is just emptiness. Emptiness is just form. And it's like, oh, that's so beautiful. But then he says, sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness, those are also like this. So there's sort of a false emphasis on form and emptiness. And I think people get hung up on it because like, there's a lot of dialogue about kind of emptiness, a kind of vacuity, and that form and vacuity kind of co-create each other. That's not what this is talking about. But a lot of people think that because of this emphasis on form is no different from emptiness. What's really saying is, is form, sensation, perception, and conditioning, and consciousness are no different than emptiness. And I'm gonna, I want to dive deeper into that idea of emptiness for those who 
don't know, but I just want you to see that the emphasis is on this idea that the five skandhas are ultimately empty. Okay? Everybody okay? Except for the whole emptiness thing, which I'm about to get into. <laughs> so besides that. The skandhas, is that the old ox cart analogy? Like, if you kick him out the ox, am I out of the weeds? No, no, yeah, that's the idea. Yeah, that we are this coagulation of these skandhas, but you can't remove one of those skandhas. You know, they're bound up together in the kind of cart analogy with the axle and the wheels and all that, yeah. Yeah. In this part about the Anatman, isn't it important to talk about the two levels of reality to make the point more clear that when they're opposing the other schools, what they're really talking about is something at the ultimate level of reality? Because most Buddhist schools accept that at a conventional level of reality, there is something like a self. <laughs> Shouldn't it, I mean, if we're representing the debate correctly with like the Nyaya and the Mamsa, yeah, yeah. they seem to be debating at the ultimate level of reality. The permanent self versus no permanent self. Well, Is that okay. The right way to see it or? Well, hold on. Hold your horses. Let's talk about emptiness first, because okay. that will be this ultimate level, and then we'll talk about a conventional level. But until we understand this ultimate level, conventional level is kind of irrelevant. So, okay, do I write stuff? Do I gesticulate? Um, <laughs> so this idea of emptiness, right? It's deeply, deeply related to last week's sutra and this idea of signlessness. So no signs. Sign being a lakshana otherwise known as a mark, a quality, a characteristic, or a sign. So this idea of emptiness, it pertains, well, it pertains to a lot. So let's start with this idea of the signless. So last week we did a sutra called the Shunyata or Emptiness Sutra, uh, and it is a meditation going through these different dhyanas that end at the signless. And so quickly, what is a lakshana? Again, if you haven't heard, if you weren't here, um, the idea is that there's all these objects in the world, right? Wow, look at this, right? So all these objects. And if I were to ask you, no, what is that? He said it's a pillow, right? How do you know that? Because the bowl sits on it. It's soft. <laughs> well, yes. But it's soft. Perfect. So the idea is, is how do we know anything? How, like if I say, what is this? Or this, that, how do you know this? You know what this is based on its qualities or its lakshana. So it's soft. That is a quality of a pillow, right? Uh, 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 something very hard doesn't make a very good p- pillow, right? <laughs> So softness is a lakshana, right? A quality, a mark, or a characteristic, right? The, the shape of this, the size of it, that it fits in my hand, the number of it that you consider it to be one, um, the color of it, that it's green, um, all of those, those are all lakshana. Those are all qualities or marks. And again, I'm doing this with this pillow, but you do it with anything you want, anything. 
The way you know what anything is, knowledge is based on these lakshana or qualities, right? The exercise... The exercise of the sutra or just a meditation is, and again, I'll I'll do the classic one, which is the color. Again, if you've heard this, I apologize. But the idea is, is that the unenlightened mind considers this to be green, that it is a color, a quality, a quality of this, right? That it, that, that it's green. But of course, we know that if there was someone here who had a color blindness or a disorder of the eye, a different set of rods and cones, they would see this not as green, it's different. Which means the greenness of this is not held by this. It is a quality or a characteristic that arises when my unique eye comes into contact with this unique whatever, and then when the two get together, in my mind, it's green. Oh, and that's, you know, I do, I do this little joke. It's like this. (laughs) (laughs) That one's green. This one's not green. Right? Because if, if, if the person's here and they're saying it's red, it's because they have a different thought bubble with a red pillow. The most important thing about this, though, is that the color is not here. It arises in the in-between. And that arising in the in-between is what Buddhists call pratitya samutpata, dependent co-origination or dependent origination. Now, I use the color one because we have this scientific knowledge about colorblindness. And I can kind of drop that on you and you can then be like, oh, yeah, I can see how it appears green, but it might not be green, right? Now let's take this fundamental pillow quality, right? This squishiness, right? Because pillows don't have to be square. Pillows don't have to be green, red, or whatever, right? But pillows kind of have to be squishy, right? But there's also this idea, of course, that, you know, whatever. You know, you come up with a zillion different examples. But if somebody had um, arthritis or something and their hands hurt, they'd be like, ah, right? And, and it would take, uh, a, you know, literally like some sort of super, super soft thing for them to say, oh, that's soft. But this might not be soft to someone else's hands, Right? Or someone, you know, or I use the example of this. Is this bowl smooth? Is it smooth? You might be inclined to say, well, yeah, it's smooth, right? But if I brought in two more bowls that were so smooth, they looked like they were dripping. They were so mirror-like smooth. All of a sudden, you would see all the zillions of... Do you see all the dings in this? Do you see how not smooth this is now? (laughs) Right? That's what we're talking about with Lakshana. These qualities, you think the qualities are held by the things. They're held by your mind, and your mind then throws them onto these things. Yes? Well, you know, physics sounds really easy to understand because it's all about comparison, right? Like, this person's more or big depending on who is next to this person, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I think it's you know, really um, easy. But for example, if we use um, water, uh, when we use, when we, you know, we have water in a bowl, and everybody would say it's fluid, mm -hmm. right? So even though, even though you're blind, and even though you have arthritis, water in that moment mm -hmm. is fluid. But at the same time, so that's how I understand emptiness, is um, in that moment it's, it's fluid, but there is no inherent nature, fluid, fluid, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. mm -hmm. because um, at one point it's snow, right? And at one point mm. it's air, right? So for me, it's the you know, easy to, like, the, what makes for me the most, like, understand that there is no inherent nature of cream, inherent great nature of fluidity. In, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> uh, the only thing on that I want to, to say, and I don't want to say that that's not what's going on here. This, all, this idea of emptiness is very, very subtle and it has a lot of aspects to it. The, my only little hesitation about what you're saying is sort of about, um, well, let me do a couple more lakshana that maybe are not so relative and easy and then maybe try to come back to the water because I think it's interesting. But the idea is, 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 so, okay, we've got color as a lakshana, relative and dependent, great. We've got the softness, relative and dependent, great. Uh, we got the, maybe the size of it, again, is this big or little, like you're saying, well, you know, oh, geez, it's little then, right? But you put it next to the tiny little pillow, all of a sudden it's the big pillow. So it's not big, it's not little, it's not green, it's not necessarily soft, it's not all of these things, right? But the one, and I've said this before, and it's just so, it, this is a tricky one, but there's a beautiful line in a sutra, you know, that says the, the, the mind is an artist that paints with dharmas. Or you could even, in this sense, substitute it for lakshana, that the mind is an artist that paints with lakshana. And so you can imagine your mind as having like a brush, and your, the brush strokes of the mind go green, square, soft, right? One, which is interesting, right? Uh, that you are, you be one, yeah. right? You got, you follow me? Now here's a big lakshana, a big quality. Be other than me. That it is not me. That's a lakshana that is just as variable and conditional as the color, the shape, and the size. And that's a lakshana that we're stroking it all with. And that's called dualism, this idea that we're, we're giving everything the quality of the characteristic that it's not me. And that, and therein lies a tremendous paradox. Because if you go beyond that, if you go gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, you go beyond that, the flip side of that, let me give you a flip side of that, all right? The way we think it works, the unenlightened mind, the way they, we think it works is this. Um, um, my bowl, my bowl could really use a little pillow. Oh, perfect. Right? That's how we think it works, right? That the, first there's me, 
subject, and then there's my possession, right? And then I need something, and so, oh, there it is. This, this should just be like, well, duh. If so, if it sounds like duh, well, good, because it's just duh. What is the subtle lakshanic movement here, though, that we don't quite see is, is that, so we think I come first, and then I grab the pillow. But what Buddha is saying is, is that in that grabbing of the pillow, and I don't necessarily mean physically grabbing it, I mean like mentally grabbing it, like seeing it. In that moment, you come into being simultaneously with what you perceive to be the other. That brush stroke of otherness is what brings you into being or your sense of self, your sense of not me. Your sense of all of that is being... It's this, this sort of twofold movement that as soon as I say other, oh, look, here I am saying other again. It's a weird thing that you think you're first and that then you go around wanting things in the world, but actually you, your wanting things of the world is what is producing your sense of individuality. So now, yeah. Isn't it not that what you talked about two or three weeks ago with the wheel? So the eye comes in when the sensation Exactly. It, it all kind of, the I comes a little later. We think the I is first, and then the thinking, and then the wanting, and then the finding, when actually it all happens sort of together in that way. That's the pratitya samutpata. So now, let's take a big step back. If, if, if we can take the greenness away from this, because we recognize that it's dependently originated, if we could take the softness if we could take the squareness, the singularity, that it's one object, take that away. Let me take the otherness away. Let me just keep taking these lakshana. If you take all, okay, so I just showed you how these qualities are totally relative, totally in your mind, totally dependent, right? So if you know right now, because I told you, or because you understand that lakshana are all tricksy, super tricksy, right? So if you start taking all the lakshana away, what are you left with? What are you left with? Empty. Correct. And well said, too. Empty. Not emptiness as if it were a thing that I were left with. It's just going... It's just... Right? Because... And this is, I, I've said this in the past. This is, cla- this is classic Buddhist philosophy, though. This pillow is not empty. You can't kind of say that logically in Buddhism because I've already set up the pillow. And then what I basically did is turn emptiness into a lakshana and said, oh, yeah. No, 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 no. Because, again, the whole idea of this being... One thing, which is silly. That's silly to think this is one thing, right? But the idea that this is one thing and then it being other than me, that's what creates, quote, it. Quote, it is a total illusion of dualism, conditioned mind, fabrications, projections, wants, desires. And if you pull back the wants, pull back the desires, pull back the lashana, Emptiness. Shunyata. So if you weren't here last week, the word is shunyata. And again, that means what now? Emptiness. Emptiness. 
Um, so I, I, I'm very ignorant, and I, I could ask you a hundred questions, but um, I, I wanted to say real quick just on the this uh, pillow. Uh, you know, uh, I was at a, another teacher's uh, Dharma talk a couple of days ago, and he was saying that one of his favorite um, translations of dukkha was being a part, <laughs> and I found it very interesting. It sounds kind of like what. Um, what you're describing, thinking that I am not, that I'm separate, you know, uh, from this, or, um, uh, you know, that there's a, a, a me that is not, that is sovereign, I guess. Mm. But, um, I don't know, I, it just came into my, mm -hmm. my head right here. But, like, the, the whole thing, okay, so, if everything, I mean, I'm very uh, blown away uh, by this uh, kind of, um, I've kind of heard things like this before, very little in, uh, knowledge of Mahayana, Mahayana Buddhism and whatnot, but the, uh, you know, if, if everything is empty, is all, all the skandhas are empty, then my perception, what I'm thinking about all of this is also empty, right? That's one of the skandhas. And so it's kind of, I mean, it seems, I mean, obviously, like, uh, you know, uh, Amalekitishvara came to a, a, an ultimate uh, nirvana around this. He awoke. But how, I mean, it's very, um, was he sitting? I mean, was he chanting? Was, he, you know, like, I'm curious. Like, how did it arise? <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, uh, first of all, I would definitely like to say uh, he, she, or it, right. <laughs> uh, for sure. And in the, in the tradition, Avilokiteshvara is most often female, oh, okay, yeah. but certainly within the deeper tradition, it's understood that he, she, it, because yeah. we're talking about, as you so eloquently put, we're talking about a being who's achieved all of this. So Anatman doesn't even begin to describe, so there can be no conventional sense of a being in that way. But we could provisionally say she or what have you. Yeah. Uh, what does it mean? I guess, you know, had I not read the Shunyata Sutra last week, I wouldn't have had a, a, as good an answer for you. But I actually think that sutra is the practice. If that makes sense. And, and it can be, it certainly is within the Mahayana tradition, not as exact as that sutra might describe it, but it is something akin to that in that it results in this signlessness. And so it is, it is a calming of the mind from meditation that's usually best achieved seated, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. All right. Thank you. What you got? Can you talk about... There's, there's like a conceptual, a linguistic way in which that's not green and it's not square and it's not one. And like, I, I, I get how, because it's all relative, right? It's only green if it's next to something that's less green. Um, but there's a physics way in which like that objectively like has the dimensions that it has and it is over there and you're over there and like it has like whatever... Uh, qualities make it reflect the bands of light that it reflects, whether you want to call it green or not call it green. Or... Mm -hmm. Process, yeah, right? because like, I can understand yeah. it as a pillow and understand it as green, and I can get rid of all of that. That's fine. Like, that's fine. But like, it's still there. And it's, still well, it's not, though. 
it's not in a certain, in, um, I, I guess this is what I was getting at, is that, this is actually this is your conventional ultimate thing, is that if we're operating from the conventional world in which you're you and I'm me and I have eyes and I need Lasix and you have eyes <laughs> and there's the pillow, within that conventional reality, what you're saying, yeah, that's conventional reality. This is not that because there is this, not necessarily like a unification of all things in the mosaic oneness. It's not quite that. It's about this very, very magical, mystical things arising together. What you just described to me was that you are there and there's the pillow. You, you, you predicated yourself or you put yourself first seeing it. No, I don't know, because you're only, like, saying those words, like, if I disappeared. You're sort of, but the idea is, is that there's this dependent origination of you and it rising together. It being, so, like, you use an example of chair. It's only a chair because I like to find the way they do. Yeah. Right? That makes sense. So, if, but if I have different legs or I'm not here to make it chairness. It's still a physical object in the shape that it is in. It just doesn't mean the same thing. Yeah. I, I feel like the concept of slaw bubble is important. I was going to write talking it. Slaw bubble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's what's going on here. Because the idea that... <laughs> Which somebody else mentioned that too. At the ultimate level of dependent origination, as you keep pointing out, is going to be that they're all co-arising. So there should be no denial of the idea that it's a physical object because that's a term within the conventional realm. At the ultimate level, those concepts don't apply. Right, so what's happening is that it's a co-arising. So the, the ultimate denial is about there is no slobble. That <laughs> right. thing doesn't, there's no that. And by the way, the, the so I think that's the term that, I think that, so, so it's svabhava. Bhava is essence. And spa means self-essence, or spa means self, so self-essence. I, oh, like, I think it's also better not to, it's better to do it in terms of Intrinsic and relational. So oh, sure. doing relational dependent existence, right. and their opponents are doing intrinsic. Essence isn't actually the right word. That was a mistranslation. Indeed, but the idea is, is that whether it's the Atman, singular, singular notion of self, or whether it's the bowl, the idea that there's the essence of the bowl, that it has svabhava, its own essence, that's totally independent of me, what, what you're describing, what you articulate is that the idea is it has its own essence. And then maybe, you know, it's a different color, or maybe my eyes perceive it this way, but there's still something out there. And that's what's being denied here is that the very notion of out there is a lakshana. The very notion of it is a lakshana. The very notion of you name it. And so there is this, this signlessness, it's heavy duty, heavy duty, because we're talking about this. Removal, but not a removal as like a theoretical practice. A removal because the knowledge has told us they're not possessed by the thing, if you know what I mean. They're arising in, in between. Start with the color, then a quality like squishiness, but any quality, again, number and then otherness. And also, by the way, if it'll help with the dependent origination, 
Time is a lakshana. That something is happening before, before is a lakshana. After is a lakshana. During is a lakshana. Yep. Oh, I was about to get to that. Like, uh, I was just wondering how now Arjuna, like, when did that happen? Because he was sort of like explaining to what extent things are empty. So, such as time and space. Right? He has like this causality proofs. Uh, and so I was wondering if he spoke or did his work, you know, prior to the Prashant or before. What about Nagarjuna? Nagarjuna, if yeah. Nagarjuna wrote the fundamental verses of the middle way before or after the Prashant. Oh, after, after, yeah. He's very... Uh, very knowledgeable about the Pranyaparamita Sutras. Absolutely, yeah. Sorry, I wasn't quite picking up what you were putting down, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, so there's this, um, I mean, if you want to understand it genealogically, there's, an, there's this initial, initial gatha that spins in this whole liturgical or literary, literary tradition, and then from that you get a philosopher like Nagarjuna, who's taking the wisdom of the Pranya that he's getting out of it and then writing the Mula Madhyamaka the fundamental wisdom of the Middle Way, and all of that. Like, so Nagarjuna is clarifying, although it's heavy stuff, he's clarifying the ideas that are in the Pranyaparamita Sutras. Yeah. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would also, I have said before too with this Lakshana game that, you know, the idea is, is that let's say, you know, this, this, um, this Dharma, this Dharma about the relationship between attachment and suffering, right? The Four Noble Truths, all life is suffering, that suffering is caused by this clinging or this desire and this attachment. And then if you don't desire or not clinging and not attached, you won't suffer. Easy syllogism there, right? So this idea of like the clinging or the wanting, right? Well, what do we cling or what do we want? Sensual desire, the Buddhist tells us. We want clinging desire, uh, sensual stimuli for the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind. Well, what is that stimulation? Could it be lakshana that we're stimulated by in terms of um, what I want that because it looks like that, right? Or I want that because it feels like that, right? Well, if you understand that you are projecting the lakshana, that 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 object that you want because it has that quality, it doesn't have that quality. You have that quality in your mind. You already possess that which you want in that sense. And no amount of grabbing is going to get you that lakshana. So for me, there's this liberation in terms of asking myself, well, what, what are these things that I want? And then looking deeper at that want and realizing it's based on lakshana and kind of doing a, an, a mental exercise around that. But I did want to also say that. Um, yeah, I have a few minutes, so I just wanted to clarify this, right? So Shariputra, 
right? We just said the skandhas, form, sensation, uh, volition, and consciousness, they're also empty. Oof, they're just like the bowl, the pillow, all of that. And yes, yeah, somebody said even consciousness. But I would argue that is the limited, subjective, between the ears, behind the eyes consciousness. And so we're actually limiting our conscious experience by thinking we're housed in these little uh, bodies here, right? Shariputra. This is the emptiness of all dharmas. So that line, if you're familiar with the Heart Sutra, that line is referring to these. And that, it's not always 108, but there are these specific lists that just get sort of elegantly put in 108. But when it says, Shariputra, this is the emptiness of all the dharmas, that they neither arise nor cease, are neither defiled nor pure, and neither increase nor decrease. That is a direct kind of attack at Abhidharma thinking about these dharmas that believed, yes, that because everybody loves impermanence, right? That's the idea. Everything arises, everything ceases. This is saying there's nothing to arise or cease. <laughs> you, we, thought the pillow, we thought the pillow existed and we shouldn't get attached to it because it was, de- de- was going to decay. It was impermanent. This is saying it's not even... It's not, there's nothing there to decay, right? So, it neither, dharmas neither arise nor cease. They're neither defiled nor pure. And this is a big one because, like I said, this original list of 108, things like greed and lust were dharmas. They made the world go round, but they were impure. And things like um, metta and you know, other ones were noble or wholesome. And this is saying neither defiled nor pure because that's a judgment of the mind. Oh, look how pretty, look how clean and pure, or something to that effect, right? And then, neither increase nor decrease. And that has to do with the idea that these 108 dharmas linked together like Legos to build, oh, look, all the skantas, and now they have increased to make a person, and they will decrease to make something else. All this idea of, of dharmas as being atomic-like particles, which the Theravada more or less thinks they were, this emptiness thing blows that out of the water. And I just want us to read a few more. So for this reason, Shariputra, within this domain or this realm of emptiness, within the signless, right, there is no form, sensation, perception, volition, or consciousness. There's no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind. Nothing to see, no sound, scent, taste, touch, or thought. No seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, not even thinking. Interestingly, no ignorance, nor end of ignorance. This is where it starts to get very mystical, where it's like, whoa, even the ignorance that's keeping me from the understanding, that's emptiness, right? Nor there's no end of ignorance either. And just so if you didn't know this already, when it says no ignorance nor end of ignorance, all the way up to no aging and death nor end of aging and death. There, the ellipse is there. There's a lacuna. That's referring to the 12 links. He only gives you the first link and the 12th link, but as a Dharma practitioner, you are to understand he's referring to all 12 links, the Mahanidana Sutra, and then he says even the links are empty. So this is truly pulling the rug out from all of Buddhism, all of it. No wisdom, no attainment. No suffering, origin, cessation, or path. The Four Noble Truths, suffering, its origin, its cessation, and the way, 
Those are empty too. Oh, this is going crazy, right? <laughs> but then, so no wisdom and no attainment. Nothing's obtained, right? What are you going to obtain? Right? Who's going to obtain what, right? So if you dig that, because nothing is attained, bodhisattvas maintain pranyaparamita. Then their heart is without hindrance. And since without hindrance, without fear. Escaping upside down dreamlike thinking and completely realizing nirvana. So there you have it. The idea is, is that, so again, I would say, go, just piggybacking off of your Thich Nhat Hanh remarks, the idea is, is like, okay, so yes, the lakshana are what I want. The lakshana are also what I'm afraid of. Right? Right? Everything, everything, say again. No, I'm talking about Michael Owens is afraid. And what am I afraid of? I'm afraid of Lakshana. If I really think about it, if I think about the things that scare me, they're qualities. Qualities of myself, qualities of the world. And this is saying that you could be fully liberated from fear through this practice by understanding this deep relationship between projection and the mind and then getting it right back. Meaning, like, my God, these bulls scare me so much. (laughs) Kind of a thing. That's the idea, that I'm frightened by Lakshana. And this is saying there's a liberation that's right within your grasp in that sense. Yes, sir. I know you're running out of time, but can you um, say two sentences about the second part of it? Um, so you wouldn't say refer to out of emptiness? No. 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 Don't turn emptiness into anything. Emptiness is this realization. It's, that's all it is, is this sort of evacuation of lakshana and then like a, a realization. But don't turn emptiness into a quality of things. Don't turn it into the source or a substrate, to use a philosophical term. There's Nagarjuna talks all day about not turning emptiness into a substrate of reality out of which everything's coming. Now, it's more about, I would say, if you just on that note, I would say that it's about the one side of emptiness this is, is this sort of evacuation of, of potentially even of meaning, certainly of significance and all those things, right? And so there's a way in which when you just evacuate and you're left in that, the realm of emptiness, what they called the shunyata vihara, right, last time, that's like where the Zen tradition just hangs out, in this kind of shunyata vihara. Of, and there's an there's a old joke about the reason why the, the Zen monks wear black is because of their negativity. It's sort of a joke about Zen monks, that they wear back, black because they're so negative. And so that aspect of emptiness, where you just evacuate everything, it can be a little like, uh, and so I always like to sort of return us back to the conventional world, but uh, through an understanding of emptiness, where we understand that, well, here, I've been wanting to do this for a while, so here we go, we've got table, uh, clock, pillow, bowl, right? Right? 
Everybody watching? Everybody watching? Sorry, what was that? I'm smoking the world's worst cigar. <laughs> right? So my hearing aid and my little hat and my chair, right? And my chunk of plastic, right? Because I don't think this is a clock. Last time I checked clocks tell time, right? Table? No, I think this is a nice chair. Bowl? I don't think so. Pillow could go all day with this. <laughs> and then of course, the world's worst one. <laughs> so you might think I'm being funny, but the reason why I wanted to pantomime that or do that is because there's a, 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 a really wild freedom that comes from emptiness because anything can be anything. These lakshana that your mind have thrown on the world and said, chair, whiteboard, bowl, that's a very rigid way of seeing the world in terms of just that kind of conditioned mental state. And that it's actually from this emptiness that extreme liberation, extreme creativity, extreme life come, if, if that makes sense. Because you're no longer lim limited by just these, um, what you thought were the lakshana possessed by it. And you realize, oh, wow, you, anything could be anything at that point, right? And I, again, I dare say anybody that wants to challenge me about this and says this is a clock, right? And then you would get into some Aristotelian uh, that it has the potential to be a clock, right? Right? I would argue anything in this room has the potential to be a clock because anything can function as a pendulum and keep time. I could hang this, be a pendulum. Anything can be a clock. So don't tell me that it's the potential of this that makes it a clock. It is the clocking that makes a clock. And this ain't clocking, right? <laughs> Another, an, uh, yes, I, I just wanted to say again about this funny bowl, right? Right? And, and I know that I've spent all, I spent all this time in this bowl, right? But the idea of it as a bowl, and that that's what it is, right? And I've, I've said this before about, you know, if I got a, a torch and started heating this up and started plying it, and I made it flat as a symbol, is it still a bowl? <laughs> Right? No. So don't say that this is a bowl. You, it would be more appropriate to say it is bowl-shaped or it is currently bowl-shaped. Right? And so now I just took the bowl away from you. I don't know if you saw it, but whoop. It is currently bowl-shaped. 
And now we have this conundrum of what is it? I-T. What is it that's bowl-shaped? Uh, this collection of atoms and molecules? That sounds like a multiple to me. That doesn't sound like one. Right? So, bowl? No. It is currently bowl-shaped. What is it? The singular it? I don't have the foggiest clue what that is. Honestly, it. The closest I can get is a collection of something. An amalgamation of a bunch of little things. You follow me? Gone. Right? Gone. The reason why I say that is because I have this friend. This is a joke. So I have this friend. And he has this amazing bowl collection. I went into his house one night and bent them all. And he came in. He was like, what the? What did you do to all my bowls? And man, he had a dukkha attack. (laughs) (laughs) Even though he still had all his possessions. Right? I didn't steal them. I just changed their lakshana. And he got all bent out of shape. Because he was attached to his Lakshana, right? Even though, again, I didn't steal anything. I just changed it a little bit. Think about that. And and uh, Holland said, objects. What do we want? (laughs) What do we desire? Objects in that sense. That which is not us. Or, when it concerns us, we want, you know, a future us or a past us or something. We want, you know, these Lakshana. Again, Lakshana, Lakshana, Lakshana. And I don't have a clock. Oh, so one question in the back. Yeah. So, because I think a lot about like anxiety and, and perceptions and stuff. So, if, if I imagine that fear comes from Lakshana, right? Like, so you see a tiger, and in your mind, you're thinking, oh, big teeth, you're thinking all these qualities, right? So, then if, you, if it doesn't have that in your mind, then you're not going to be afraid of it, right? It's, so on that note, I do want to say, you know, that this idea, though, is that, you know, conventional reality, ultimate reality that our friend mentioned over here, you know, once you've gone through the gate of emptiness, so to speak, it's not that you become an idiot and you don't, cannot recognize Lakshana, cannot recognize that which you have been conditioned to know is dangerous for you or all of that, right? It's just a, a, a waking up in that sense of a kind of like, oh... And by the way, on your note about the tiger, the idea is is that if I were confronted by a tiger and based on its lakshana, I were all freaked out, I'd probably get eaten. But if I could deduce, oh, that's a tiger, but I have no fear, and I'm up. The idea being from a Buddhist point of view that this dukkha and this suffering actually agitates our minds and we make bad decisions from that agitated place that put us in an even worse place. And so the wisdom of all of this kind of, you know, does come back to the meditation and the clearing or the, the calming of the mind because the idea is that with a calm mind, we'll make wa- way wiser decisions and put ourselves in better karmic situations to make even better decisions. Yeah. Karma is, is death and life, not traumas. The sutra says, what is no, no aging in death nor end of aging in death. Indeed, they are a lakshana. 
I know that that's crazy, that aging and death is Lakshana, but here's, guess what, guess what? Getting out my brush stroke again. You ready? Human, vaginally born, fated to die. Those are Lakshana. Take them or leave them in that sense. It, it depends on, again, I mean, this goes back to a few Dharma talks ago, but it depends on what you identify with. If you identify with the corporal body, got bad news for you. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> um, please, Brendan. No, no, no. no, I'm I'm looking for something. Do it. Well, I just uh, this makes me just think of um, you know it's just deconstructing. Like, what is this experience of being a human? Like, it's a big old construction of a bunch of. Lakshana. Yeah. Deconstruction would be one kind of more modern way of it's thinking not that of it. The world, like, disappears or not at all. It's what a has way. It been like to be a human is like, I don't know what non existence is because all I know right now is existence. I mean, fair enough. It's uh, what happens when I die. Well, it's just what is apparent right now. Like, the right. building of, you know, my pleasure. I want to just leave you on our way out with a, uh, a chant of the Heart Sutra. Uh, just as you leave, I'm going to leave it in the air just to give you, just to take us away from the, because you, know, you all know me. You know me. And so I'm coming with the heady, high philosophy stuff because it's what I as a person have to offer. But I don't want you to leave here thinking that this sutra is up there because it's really right here. I mean, really, really right here in that sense. Yeah. Bo Rei, Bo Luo, Mi Duo, Xin Jing. Guan Zi Zai Pu Sa, Xin Shan. Bo Rei, Bo Luo, Mi Duo Shi. 矫健无用皆空度一切苦厄实例子次不为空空不为四次即是空空即是四受上行师以夫如师实例子是诸发空腔不伤不灭不垢不净不脏不见十故空中无色无受上行失无厌二鼻舌神意无色伤为处法无眼界乃至无一时界无无名亦无无名尽乃至无老师亦无老师经无苦解灭道无智亦无德亦无所得故菩提萨埵亦波雷波罗弥多故心无寡爱无寡爱故无有空怖原理颠倒蒙想究竟涅盘三世诸佛以波瑞波罗蜜多故得阿尿多罗三藐三菩提故知波瑞波罗蜜多是大
大山州，是大面州，是无上州，是无等等州，能出一切苦，真实不输古说波瑞波罗蜜多州，即说咒曰：揭谛揭谛，波罗揭谛，波罗僧揭谛。菩提萨婆诃。